0: So, so I like to learn stuff. And Buddhism has really allowed me to look at you know, life a lot differently than I ever looked at it before. And when I became ordained in uh, 1994 as novice in 96, as a fully ordained monk, I didn't really know what to do. You know, should I sit at the center and just you know, meditate all day? Well, that's not going to work very well. Um, should I, you know, uh, read the profound texts of Buddhism that are thousands of years old? You can find them, you know, uh, online and in bookstores now. And I say, well, I, it's good to read something. But maybe, maybe now that I'm ordained, maybe I should do something. You know, rather than just be something. So being something is good up to a point, but doing something is even better because that makes a difference. So... The first thing I did was answer the phone. Seemed logical and there was a, a person on the phone, his name was Deacon Szymanski and he had seen an article in the L.A. Times about me speaking in uh, Pomona uh, at a Buddhist club and wondered if I'd be interested in going to California State Prison for Men to, to work with the Buddhist prisoners because he was Catholic and really didn't know what to say to the Buddhist prisoners. And so my response to that was, they're Buddhist prisoners? <laughs> <laughs> you mean we go to prison? And he said, yeah, we got a couple Buddhists up here, you know. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And so uh, once a month, I, I, I didn't have a car then. I couldn't afford a car but I had a motorcycle. So I'd ride my motorcycle up to Lancaster, California which is like riding into hell during the summer and riding into hell during the winter because it was like colder and cold and hotter than hot. And, uh, but once I got to the prison, you know, uh, I went in. They have 4,300 men at that point. And uh, I started in, in the high security section of the prison. And so, you know, and, and we had some people join up. I was surprised we had people join up. We had some Buddhists who actually were born in Buddhist countries and studied Buddhism but didn't know a lot about Buddhism. It's like talking to a Christian in America and wanting them to explain Christian theology. Well they can tell us about Easter you know but when it comes to theology it's a little difficult. So you know I I saw I I was, I'd be useful there and then we had some people that practiced yoga and they wanted to find out about Buddhism and so we had our little group and it was held in the chapel and I was able to get some books donated uh, to the chapel and then they were stolen and I'm going well you know this is a prison you know and so, so, one, of the, so one of the prisoners said well I'll be, I'll be the librarian and we'll keep all the books in my cell and then I'll keep track of who takes them out and who brings them back. So that, so that problem was solved and, and then they asked me if I'd bring some incense. Um, uh, for their cells. And I said, sure. And so I brought like, you know, even, I think it was a thousand sticks of incense. I got some donations from different temples and they have plenty of incense. So I brought it all up. And then the next month I went up there, they asked if I could bring some more incense. And I said, but I just brought you a thousand sticks of incense. They said, but we don't have any left. We sold all that and we need some more. <laughs> so I was like the supplier. And I said, well... Maybe we don't eat incense. Maybe it's okay not to have incense here. And then they wanted me to change their their food. They wanted to be vegetarians because apparently the food isn't very good in prison and they figured if they could get some fresh vegetables and fruits it would be even better. And I said, well, you know, I'm really not here to change your diet. I'm here to change your mind. So I'm not going to talk to the warden about what you eat. You know, I'm just going to tell you about what the Buddha said. And so finally it all settled down and and they all brought blankets from their cell and they sat on that on the floor instead of cushions. And they never closed their eyes during meditation. Because they didn't trust the people next to them. So they all everybody meditated with their eyes open and I'm going, Okay, there you go. And so I started at the beginning. You know, I just started by what the Buddha said and what meditation was and, and what the uh ideal of Buddhism is and what the final goal is. And, I, and, and it was good. It was good. I had an uh, interesting time up there. Uh, but I realized, too, after being there for a while, that there's a reason we have prisons. And not everybody needs to be in society. That you know, There are some people that just don't have any self-control and, and do some pretty nasty things. So, and, but there are some people that actually get better in prison and are able to leave and, and they've taken, they've gone to school and they've got a degree now which they didn't have when they came into prison and now they can maybe find work and, and live a normal life, whatever the heck a normal life is, you know. So then I got another phone call I just kept answering my phone and this was Mr. Noy Russell and he was at Central Juvenile Hall downtown. And he said, you know, I heard about you, and I was wondering if you could come and talk to the young people uh, about Buddhism. I think that would be useful. And I said, are there any Buddhists in juvenile hall? He said, well, no, I haven't found any. But my, little, but my knowledge of Buddhism says it's all about suffering and the end of suffering, and we have people suffering here. So if you could come and give a talk, maybe they would suffer less. So I went and gave a talk and, and it seemed to be fine. Again I started in a, in a high security section of uh, juvenile hall and, uh, and when I walked into the room I really felt comfortable because we all had the same haircut and I'm going okay. I can, I can relate to this you know. So I I talked about suffering and the end of suffering and and I was there for five years and uh, and one year I was awarded the volunteer of the year award from the probation department. So as a Buddhist I, you know, I I was always a volunteer. I never made any money from what I was doing but I did get a lot of certificates and so (laughs) my wall is full of certificates which is nice. And then after uh, after that I got a call from Garden Grove mayor who said, hey can you speak to our mayor's prayer breakfast? We'd like you to be the keynote speaker. And I said, well you know I don't pray much but I do eat breakfast. I'll take the gig. And so I went down and gave a talk and and everybody seemed to enjoy what I had to say. And then the police, uh, the, the chief of police asked me if I wanted to be a ride-along police chaplain. And you know, Cops was always one of my favorite shows. So I thought, yeah, I want to see how all those people got to prison in Juvenile Hall. So for seven years, I was a ride-along uh, police chaplain. And, and I'd, I'd just be on the ship, be 12-hour shifts. And I'd go once a week, sometimes once every other week, and, and i just ride with the guys. And, and I have to give them credit, because they didn't know I was going to be with them that day. And they usually rode alone in Garden Grove, unlike they do in L.A. And and so now I'm sitting next to a police officer, and he's sitting next to this Buddhist guy, and probably never heard about Buddhism or what Buddhism was about. And and so, so what do you talk about after 12 hours? You know, well, we talked about you know the wife got some new drapes. You go, know, yeah, cool, you know. And, and what they saw on TV and the movie they went to. And, and we just talked about life, you know. And then we'd ch- chase somebody once in a while and then we'd, but most of the time we are just driving around. And one of the things I noticed about being in a police car is they never look at you. That you'll go up to a stop sign or stop light and you have cars on either side and then never look in the, in the police car. You know, I'll be looking at them but they're straight ahead. You know. Both hands on the wheel, you know, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. So, and during this time, I ended up at UCLA. Um, yeah, go figure. And and so, there was something called uh, the Buddhist Sangha Council of Southern California, and Ven. Piananda was the president, and there was a woman named Heidi Singh, and she had been the Buddhist volunteer chaplain for the University Religious Conference at UCLA. And she has children and a husband and and a job and she just, it was just becoming too much for her. So Venerable Piananda said, Kusla, hey, have you ever thought about being a chaplain at UCLA? I said, well, no, I never thought about that. would you like to be and we can put you right in there and so and you can just have learn a lot and share Buddhism and so I did. I, I, I signed up and I was the Buddhist chaplain for the University Religious Conference at UCLA for I was uh, ten years, long time and we started on campus Buddhist club and I was eventually uh, invited to join the spiritual care committee at the UCLA Medical Center and I would give uh, uh, end of patient, uh, end of life issues for Buddhist patients, um, presentations to the new chaplains coming online at UCLA. And once in a while I would go and speak to Buddhist uh, patients. But, um, you know, it, they, they weren't impressed with me because I didn't look like a Buddhist. You know, I was really tall and I seemed to be Caucasian and I only spoke English and what is wrong with you? I said, well, you know, I was born in Iowa. I don't know, you know, I'm just doing the best I can and I really liked Buddhism and uh, so if we, you know, so once in a while I would speak to patients but usually I found them to be disappointed when, that, when I walked into the room so I, I, it's a clue but the, but the, but the club on campus w- went really well and we had a lot of students and they weren't all Buddhists but they were interested in Buddhism and some were into yoga and some were into Hinduism and and some were just into higher consciousness. And and so that was a lot of fun. But the problem with UCLA is that they don't stay there very long. You know, so you have a wonderful Buddhist club and all of a sudden half of them are gone the next year. And you go, man. But the new ones show up, it's like, you know, The old ones go, the new ones come. Okay, the new ones showed up, and we started again. And and so I gave a lot of the same talks two, three, four times, but it was okay because it was a new audience, so it worked out well. So I just kept doing all this stuff, you know, 20 years of community service. and, And people say, well, what did you learn from all of that? I said, the thing I learned most was just to show up. You know, you're not going to change anybody's life. They're going to change their own life. You may give them some ideas of how you changed your life by what you say and what you do, but you can never tell anybody to change their life in the way you think they should. So I learned that early on. So somebody once asked me, Well, how many people did you save? And I said, Not one. <laughs> If if that's the sign of success, I was a failure. But I did show up and I kept showing up even though I didn't save anyone. So then I decided, well maybe I don't need to, you know, do community service anymore. Maybe 20 years is enough. See, that was a predicament. When I started doing this, how long should I do it? You know? And you do it for a month and you say well I go for six months and then you go a year and then you go for two years and then you go for five years and you just you know and, and all the while you're getting older, less vigorous you know uh, other things are coming up all the time. And, and so you know so after twenty years I decided not to be a volunteer on a regular basis but just you know an occasional talk here and there. I really enjoy talking at churches because you go in and twenty minutes later you're through and everybody loves you, you know, and it's just, it's fantastic, you know, not like uh, juvenile hall or you know, the prisons, but it's just like, you know, so, so that works out well. So, I, you know, I've always accepted those invitations and then if I speak in a school, I'll do that. Uh, the high schools, uh, I've spoken in quite a few of them and they're a lot of fun because they've got the best questions. So it goes on. So I have my website, uh, kusala.org. I have my YouTube channel. You know, I have my podcasts. I have my Facebook page. So rather than going out into community, I just sit in my room, don't have to smell good, and work online. (laughs) And I get to post the best pictures of me. Nobody ever sees, you know, me on the bad day, only the best days. And... So I sort of like the online presence I have because it's manageable and I don't have to travel. But now that the pandemic is sort of winding down, at least for now, I, I hear there are variants happening, but you know, I think this is going to be like the flu season for the rest of our life. Um, it's nice to get out again and, and see faces and, and, and hear comments and, uh, and see people walking and sitting and talking and it's good. I like that. So I'm going to talk about just what Buddhism is uh, now to get it started because it can be really complicated but I have never been complicated. I have been gifted with oversimplicity because that's the way I understand life. I, I don't, I'm never going to be a scholar though I've read a lot but I just figured you know after giving a lot of talks. If I talk to the mind of people who are listening to me, I'm always leaving half of them out. If I talk to the heart of people listening to me, I speak to everyone. So I, I much rather sound like sort of a regular guy than a scholar professor. Though I like scholar professors, I just don't like to listen to them. <laughs> I, I think there's a place for them in the world and they should write as many books as they want. So, what is Buddhism? Buddhism can be looked at as a religion. That's how I look at it. And they say, but it can't be a religion because it doesn't have salvation. I said, yeah, it does. Buddhism saves you from suffering. That's our salvation. So we never have to suffer again. Okay. But Buddhism can be a lifestyle. You know, you can wear, like, all cotton, be a vegetarian go listen to the latest Dalai Lama talks. You could have that as your lifestyle too. You don't have to be a religious Buddhist. Buddhism can be a a really interesting philosophy because it's complicated and deep and and very hard to understand at many levels. So Buddhism works well as a philosophy. And Buddhism can be a therapy. So a lot of people look at Buddhism as, I'm having a bad day. I guess I'm going to have to go meditate and, and read some dharma so I feel better. So it can be a therapy as well. So depending on how you look at it, you, those are different ways you can approach the subject of Buddhism. Was there a Buddha? Was there a historical Buddha? Archaeological evidence says, yeah, there was this guy you know, we don't know if they called him the Buddha, but there was this guy, and he lived about the same time as the, as the historical Buddha did, and he, and he traveled. And we have these talks that have been recorded, which may have been his talks. But now when you start getting into the Buddha Dharma and, and what the Buddha talked about, keep in mind that the Buddha was not a god. So what he said has been edited over thousands of years by monks, who said, I really think he meant this, you know? And so they just changed a little bit to go to how they thought, you know, he thought and what he was saying. Okay, so when you read the Buddha Dharma, you have to do it with a grain of salt. And you go, okay, he may have said this. Someone may have said this. And it seems to be good and it seems to work. And so that's the main thing. Does the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma work? Yes. Does it matter who said it? Not as much as the fact that it works. That's a good way to approach the Buddha Dharma because it can be really complicated. So we have this guy who is said to have been a prince, had a wonderful life, had the best food, the best clothing, the best friends. They were all young and healthy. And one day he said to his charioteer, Chana, Chana, let's go into the streets of the city. I've been kept secluded in the palace. I want to see what's happening outside the walls of the palace. Come on, let's go. And so one day it said that Chana and Siddhartha Gautama, before he became the Buddha, went into the streets of the city and saw a couple things that forever changed his mind. And the first thing he saw was this really sick guy. Now, he had never seen sick people. He didn't expect to be sick himself. And there was this really sick person. So he said, Chana, what's wrong with that guy? And Chana said, well, he's sick. And everybody that's born has to get sick. And so Siddhartha reflected on that and thought that was an interesting concept. And they continued through the streets of the city, and then they saw somebody that was really old. And so Siddhartha said to Chana, what kind of sickness does he have? Why does he look that way? And Chana said, well, he's really old. And everybody that lives long enough gets old. And Siddhartha said, that's an interesting concept. (laughs) So they continued through the streets of the city and then they saw this really dead guy. And so Siddhartha said to Chana, Chana, What's wrong with that guy? Is he sick? Is he old? And Shana said, no, he's dead. And everybody that's born has to die. And so Siddhartha said, well, that's an interesting concept. And they continued through the streets of the city, and then they saw this guy who was all dressed in white, who seemed relaxed and peaceful and unaffected by the sickness and old age and death that Siddhartha had just seen. And he said to Chana, Chana, why is that guy so relaxed? Look at all the suffering we've seen today. It doesn't seem to affect him at all. And Chana said, he's a religious person. He's finding the answers to life through his spiritual practice. That's why he looks the way he does. And Siddhartha said, that's an interesting concept. And went back to the palace and was reflecting on all that he had seen and said to himself i'm going to find the answers to life and the answers to suffering so one night he got up and he kissed his wife and first child goodbye and left them in the care of his parents and now people listening to this story for the first time say He was a deadbeat dad. How could he leave his wife and his son? Well, as it goes, he may have said to them, I'll be back once I find the answer to suffering. In the same way, a service member in the armed forces may say to his wife or her husband, I'll be back once the war is over. So it wasn't leaving them forever. It was leaving them to find the answer to suffering. And so he did. He found it. He achieved nirvana. It took him a really long time. It took him years of practice and, and almost starvation. And, but he did it. He hung in there. And then he's giving a talk in a small village and his wife Found out that he was giving a talk, and his wife said to the son, Rahula, now who was older, Go and ask your dad for your inheritance because he was really rich. And so little Rahula went to his dad and said, Dad, I want my inheritance. And the Buddha said, Yes, I'll give it to you. And he ordained his son as a monk. That was his inheritance. Well, his wife went nuts. Not only did she lose her husband, but she lost her her only son. So she went up and said, how could you do that? How could you ordain your son as a monk? And he spoke to her for a while and ordained her as a nun. And that's why we have... No people today who are directly associated with the Buddha through life and birth or marriage because he ordained everybody and they were celebrated. Okay, so what did he have to say about this this thing that he found? Because he, he talked for 45 years. You know, it would have been interesting to me if Christ had talked for 45 years because he would have had some really cool stuff to say and it might have been very similar to what the Buddha said. So the Buddha said, I have discovered four universal truths. Now, truth is a difficult concept. I know everybody thinks truth is obvious, but it's not. Truth is at a relative level and an ultimate level according to Buddhism. So what is relative truth? Relative truth is you can't drive any faster than 65 miles an hour or they give you a ticket. That's the relative truth of being on the freeway. Okay, cool. Is it arbitrary? Is relative truth arbitrary? Absolutely, because remember back in the 70s we couldn't drive any faster than 55 because we had an oil shortage and we were trying to save gasoline? You know, so how are we saving gasoline in 2022? We just raise the price to an ungodly amount. So people are driving less. Okay, relative truth. Relative truth. And most of our truths that we deal with are relative. Ultimate truth. An ultimate truth can only be experienced. An ultimate truth can only be felt. It's intuitive. It's not intellectual. You feel it. You know it, but you may not understand it. That's the ultimate truth, and that's what the Buddha eventually realized through his practice. So he said, "The first truth I have discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory." Yeah, yeah, and and it's not always unsatisfactory. We can go to Disneyland. We can have a, a nice day but it's ultimately going to be unsatisfactory. Why? Why? Because it's always changing. That's why. It never stays the same very long at all. Just when you think you've got a good hair day, the next day it looks terrible. And you go, wow, what happened? You know? And your car needs a tune-up, and your shoes hurt, and you just go, man, you know, I know my life could be perfect if only but it never turns out to be perfect because it's always changing into something else. As are we. We're always changing into something else. If you saw me 30 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago, I didn't look like this. And you know, I looked like that person in that era, in that decade. I thought, and dressed like that person in that decade. But that person had to die in order for the next person to be born again. So we're being dying and reborn moment after moment. Old people die, the new people come. In one body, in one lifetime. So what did I do with some of my old past lives? I gave them a memorial service because I wanted to wish them well. You know, they were gone now and somebody else took their place and so, okay, there we go. So I have the, all these memorial services over a period of years for all the people that I used to be. Okay. And, and who am I going to be? I don't know. But I do know the final outcome of all the people I've been. I will die. Everybody does. That's what the Buddha saw. in the city. Birth always equals death. And the fun part's in between. But it's not always fun. And that's why life is ultimately unsatisfactory. The second truth that the historical Buddha found out was that the reason we are unsatisfied with our life is because we have desire and craving. A thirst that can't be quenched we have attachment and we have aversion. And we're always trying to manipulate our life to make it into what we think it should be. And unfortunately, in our life, we are only one of the contributing factors. We are only one of the contributing factors that make up our life. We have all our family and friends and all the strangers and the environment. We have so many factors, maybe a thousand factors that make our life and our day exist in the way it does. And then all those thousand factors are continually changing and morphing into something else. And we try to hold on to all the good stuff and we fail miserably. And we try to push away all the bad stuff and we fail miserably. And we're so dissatisfied. And we call that suffering. And suffering doesn't have to be big suffering. Suffering could just be a little discontent. Oh, if only I felt just a little better today. You know? If only my mind was a little more clear. Maybe I should do more stuff in the morning with clear mind rather than the afternoon with tired mind, you know? And of course that's why they invented naps. I don't know if you take advantage of that, but I have to have a nap every day. And it's wonderful. The third truth that the historical Buddha found was that there is an answer. So it's not pessimistic, Buddhism is realistic. He diagnosed the problem, suffering, he found the cure. He noticed what the therapy was. He saw all these things. And that's what he talked about for 45 years. Only two things. So we keep it. Oh, that's me. <laughs> Nobody ever calls well go away. Nobody ever calls me. So isn't it a pleasant song? And so he said, I have found the answer. The answer to the end of suffering, and that is, thank you, and that is nirvana, and the way to nirvana is the eightfold path. Wow. The path that leads to nirvana, step by step right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Those eight path factors form, form our release from suffering. That's the path we all take. Now, it's not one by one. It's not sometimes it's not linear we have to this is a weird path it's an ultimate path so it's not linear one does not lead to two but all together it creates our salvation salvation from suffering okay so far so good okay let's talk about the first path factor right view okay now, right view is interesting because it, there's, it's two parts. Number one, to understand the noble, Four Noble Truths, which I just spoke about, in a relative and ultimate way, to understand both levels. <sighs> Technology, eh? To understand that it is going to be with you the rest of your life if you practice Buddhism. So you need to understand what you're doing and how to, how to talk about it and how to listen to it. But you also need to understand at an ultimate level with no talking and no understanding, but intuiting it and feeling it. So we have the Four Noble Truths at a relative level and an ultimate level. And now we come to karma right view of karma. This is so important because karma is the motivating factor of our life. Karma is our life's engine. Okay, And there's a lot of, you know, what goes around comes around, one of my favorite bumper stickers in the 70s, you know. That sort of hints at karma, but that's not the kind of karma I'm talking about. So the kind of karma I'm talking about is this. Karma is what you think, what you say, what you do. The consequences of what you think, say, and do, in Pali, the canonical language of early Buddhism, is called vipaka. Karma, vipaka, cause and consequence. Okay? Cause and consequence. So every time we think something, we are generating karma. We're transforming neutral energy, okay? It's all about energy. We're transforming neutral energy into positive or negative. Wholesome, unwholesome. Skillful, unskillful. However you want to think about it. We're taking a neutral energy and thinking about something and creating that neutral energy and making it positive or negative. That has the least amount of consequence, we have a thousand thoughts every day that might not be so skillful. But the consequences of those unskillful thoughts really don't manifest because nobody knows. Thinking is really nice. It's all in the inside. It's not on the outside. And some people say, wouldn't it be cool if you could read people's minds? I'm going, no way. <laughs> I, I just read my own mind and I'm disappointed. I don't want to read theirs too. <laughs> so then we've got speaking. Speaking. Now speaking has a much greater consequence, you know? And we can see it right now with all the problems in the world and, and all these leaders of the world and what they say and the reactions to what they say and how it escalates and de-escalates the, the situation and how everybody's angry or they're not angry or they're not quite as angry. We get, oh, this goes on all the time. So speaking is really important And you can't take it back once it gets into the world. So we really need to be mindful before we say something unskillful because those consequences will follow us. The problem with karma, it never forgets your zip code. That's the problem. And you can't ask for forgiveness. Karma has no ears. You can't put your hands together and say, oh, karma, can you forgive me? Karma has no eyes. Man, you're stuck. Almost. There's a way out, but you're stuck. The worst kind of karma is action. And I say the worst kind if it's unskillful, but the best kind is is if it's skillful. So all my volunteer years, I consider that to be skillful activity. That I was... I was filling up my karma account with good, positive karma. So if I was a jerk a few times during those 20 years, I would overshadow me being a jerk with all the good karma that I presented. And so I wouldn't feel the consequences. Isn't that cool? See how that works? You have a pond, okay? And you throw a rock in the pond and it creates all these ripples all across the top. That's what... Karma is with no good karma. You have, if you throw the karma in, there's nothing to absorb the bad stuff and you feel the consequences. But what happens if you throw a rock in the ocean? A couple ripplets, ripples, but then it disappears because it's absorbed. So how I look at all my 20 years of service was that that's the big karma. That's the ocean of karma. In all the little stuff I did, it was like throwing a pebble in the ocean. So I didn't feel the consequences, or if I did, they weren't very severe. Okay? So here we go now with action. And if anybody saw the Oscars, oh my gosh, how could that happen? How could that happen? And everybody just freaked out. And we're still talking about it. And I'm thinking, did you forget about Ukraine? You know what I'm saying? Have you forgot about the pandemic and the million people that died during the pandemic globally? You know, I can appreciate it was an unskillful action. But the thing that magnified it out of proportion was the context. Where did it happen? Why? This is supposed to be a celebration. We're honoring people for their skill, for their service to the entertainment community. How could this happen? And I'm going, well, you know, it just happens. This stuff happens all the time. You know, yesterday there was a hit and run and somebody died in the crosswalk. God, you know? Do we talk about that for 11 days? hardly even a mention on the news, you know. You just go, oh, you're good. So it's interesting how in the context our karma can be generated and increased and magnified to an amazing portion. And then some of the other stuff we do is, is, doesn't have the same consequence because it's been buffered by all the good stuff we did before, karma. So we need to understand karma. And that karma is what we live by because as a Buddhist we do not have a divine lawgiver who defines for us what is right and what is wrong. We lack that. So what do we have instead? What's our reference point? Our reference point is more suffering or less suffering. If I'm suffering less, I got good karma. If I'm suffering more, I got bad karma. And those consequences are starting to manifest. So what do I need to work on? I need to work on my karma. And if it hasn't manifested yet, say you've done something really stupid, you've said something that was uncalled for, and now you know it's going to come back and haunt you. What can you do? Well, you can't beg karma for forgiveness because it doesn't care. It's like gravity. You fall down, gravity doesn't care that you fell down. It's just... It's gravity. Karma doesn't care that you are a jerk. It's just karma. So you need to go out and do some good stuff. You need to do some good stuff to balance the bad stuff you just did, or the dumb stuff you just did, or the unskillful stuff you just did. So you need to maybe give somebody some food, donate to a proper cause, like save the animals or something. You need to do something good or skillful So that karma then will have a positive consequence and negate the unskillful karma. And you might feel the consequence a little bit, but not as much as you would have if you didn't perform something good, say something good, or think something good. See how that works? You know what that means? That literally means we're in charge of our life. Come on! We've had all these people tell us they're in charge. You know? The politicians tell us they're going to do this for us and that for us. You know? The religious people tell us they've got something that will help us. You know? The, the police department says we're on your side. We're going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. Okay. And, you, and, you get, and then if you have a wife or a husband or a mother or a father or children, you know, they're going to help you. They're going to be on your side. Yeah, okay. But at some point, I suppose, we need to take responsibility for our life. And if it's not going the way we think it should, we need to change what we think, say, and do to change the course. But again, we're one of the contributing factors. We're not the only factor. So it may take a really long time, and it may take a couple lifetimes. We don't know. Let's talk about lifetimes, because this just freaks westerners out rebirth and reincarnation i don't believe that come on have you ever talked to anybody that remembers their past life and if they did remember their past life they were a king or a queen they weren't a garbage guy you know so so, you know so so why do we have rebirth in buddhism now, we don't have reincarnation. Let me, let me be clear about that. And you say, well, what's the difference between reincarnation and rebirth? Reincarnation requires a soul. And Buddhism says, we don't have a soul. Now, does that freak you out? You can have one if you want. It's okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not going to hurt anything. It's just when the Buddha looked for his soul, which was an important concept 2,500 years ago in India, he kept coming up empty. He couldn't find it. Where does it exist if we have a soul? Is it behind the pituitary gland? Is that why we can't be aware of it? Is it what does it look like? How much does it weigh... They were doing some experiments back in the 20s to see how much a soul would weigh. And so they'd weigh somebody before they died, and then they'd weigh somebody after they died, and the difference between the weight would be the weight of the soul. Okay, well, we know when people die, sometimes the body just sort of relaxes and a lot of fluids are let go, and so that could account for the difference in weight. Then, when they finally invented x-rays, okay, I think this might have been back in the 20s too, they decided to x-ray people and find out where the soul was. Couldn't find it, but they sure shared a lot of radiation in trying to find it. <laughs> so, so the Buddha said, you know, it's that, that soul, and what we talk about in 2022 is not the soul as much as we talk about the self, the ego, personality, thanks to all the psychologists that have come along and said, that's who you really are. But then you try to find out where that personality lives, you know? And some people say, well, it's in the frontal lobes, that's where you exist, the frontal lobes. And if you're having issues with your personality, let's try a lobotomy and change that personality. It does change the personality, but it, that's not who you are, according to Buddhism that personality, that self, we call that not-self. We call it not-self. We call it emptiness. We, a better way to describe a human being would be to describe emptiness. So what is emptiness, according to Buddhism? Emptiness is the interconnection and interdependence of all phenomena. Empty of independent existence. Nothing exists independently. Everything necessarily exists because other things exist. If you take too many things away, then we no longer exist. For instance, if you stop drinking water, in about seven or eight days, you're dead. If you stop eating food, you maybe have 25 to 35 days. So it takes longer to die that way. If you stop breathing air you might have five or six minutes at the most and then you're dead so we are dependent on so many different things for our simple existence as a human being that we can't say it's only one thing so when you come to buddhism there is no one thing it's always two or more and that can be rather uncomfortable because one is such a important number one is the loneliest number can. I wish I could sing. So, but you know, it's always, you know, he's the one. Remember Neil in The Matrix? Neil backwards is one. He's the one. Oh. He's the best then, because he's number one. Isn't number one always the best? Yes. Buddhism doesn't have number one. We're never going to be the best. We're just going to be realized in a in an important, conceptual, philosophical, religious way, as being a way out. A way out, not of our life. Life is precious, life is special, life is magical. But a way out of the suffering of our life. So never feel bad about being born, never feel bad about dying, feel good about the chance of living another day, and knowing that you have something to say about it. You've got something to say. And you can affect your life and the lives of others by simply being kind and generous and wise. So Buddhism ultimately is about building up those attributes. We want to have more kindness. It's so difficult. Hard to be kind to homeless people because they look bad and they smell. How can you be kind to them? What are you going to do? And even if you feed them once they're going to be hungry in an hour or two, or a day or two. That's that's the deal. How do you keep the kindness going? And is being kind always being there for them? Being generous. How much can you give away? How much money do you have? How many resources do you have that you don't use that you could share? You know? And if you don't have any resources to share, do you have time? Can you sit down and listen to somebody who's having a bad day? That's a wonderful way of practicing generosity because people, as we get older, as you know, time becomes so much more important and so much more valuable that a lot of times they don't want to waste the time listening to a story. But what better way to be generous if you can't afford them to give something physical, give something emotional? Practice that. And finally, the wisdom the wisdom necessary to look at the world and understand it for what it is. And the problem with understanding it for what it is, is you're probably going to need a few years of meditation practice not to go crazy when you start to see what the world really is and all the people that live in it and how it could be and how it is and how it will never be. And does that allow you to come to a place of acceptance with what is, not with what could be. Can you come to your daily life, your daily experience of your life, can you be peaceful in the acceptance of this is the way it is? I can change some things, some things I have to accept, some things I, I don't like but I'm not able to change. So how do I feel peaceful with that? and that's so buddhism is a an amazing way of experiencing your life in a world of pain and suffering and birth and death